For today's episode, Matt sits in with me while we interview former Seattle City Councilman Mike O'Brien, who just happens to be Mike's cousin. So it's an interesting conversation. We do talk about some specific uh, political involvement and specific policies, but more generally, just what it's like to serve uh, in a public capacity in a large city. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Unfortunately, there's a little bit of an audio issue. We were recording over the phone, and especially in the beginning, there seems to be a little bit of an echo when I'm talking to him and before he can respond. So a couple times we kind of overlap each other, but hopefully that's not too distracting and you uh, get the gist of the message. Enjoy. It's so weird to know you and have to having been to your house and had Thanksgiving with you and then Google you. That's really weird. <laughs> but I did want to be at least somewhat prepared because I knew you had served in the city council, but I really didn't know a lot about it. But I knew There's I was desperate to talk to you about it. <laughs> Great. So um, please feel free to say, no, I don't want to talk about that, I, you know, or whatever. I can just edit it out. It's all fair game. <laughs> well, I'm not a reporter, so I'm not trying to get the gotcha moment. No, I, I know that. And, you know, yes, there are a lot of listeners that are going to hear it that are in the area, in the Pacific Northwest. But there's also people from other countries. So most of my focus, although I am going to ask you about a few specifics locally, I really want to know about your experience serving in a public capacity and how that has affected you personally and that kind of thing. More of the more general stuff rather than... More of a social work angle. Yeah. Well, <laughs> why were you kicked out of the museum? You know? <laughs> Which, by the way, is on your Wikipedia page. Oh, sweet. I don't, I don't know if you Wikipedia'd yourself lately. I haven't since I left. Probably <laughs> haven't for a couple of years. So, yeah. So I guess I should really, uh, you know, do some kind of introduction or perhaps maybe let you introduce yourself because you know more about yourself. Um, obviously, I'm talking to you about the Seattle City Council and you served from 2009 to 2019. Is that right? Yeah, actually, January 1, 2010 to December 31, 2019. So ah. The entire decade. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Midnight to midnight by city law <laughs> and your background is you went to duke and university of washington you have a, a business master's is that right yep i got a uh, undergraduate bachelor's degree in economics from duke in 1990 and then an mba from university of washington in 1997 i believe so you're kind of a smarty pants <laughs> well, i don't know about that but i like numbers for sure <laughs> You're definitely a numbers guy, for sure. So I looked up just a few things. I looked at uh, Wikipedia, of course. I looked at the Seattle.gov page, which still has you on there. Okay. And there was, I think, a public Facebook page that I looked at. And then I looked up, um, like, an article or two of things. So just a couple of things that I noticed from those pages as far as policies and things that might get us to talk about where you were coming from originally um, was yeah. you were the one or one of the first, I guess, to um, opt out of the yellow pages. I'm assuming that was uh, some kind of a climate change recycling situation. Exactly. When was the last time you used the yellow pages other than to sit on it or to stand up to get something off the top shelf? <laughs> it, uh, probably since I had a handheld computer. Exactly. So, um, I forget what happened. It's probably, well, you probably know better than me, 2011, 2012. And, you know, I actually did this when I was um, in college or just out of college. One of my jobs was delivering yellow pages. <laughs> and so I, I, had, um, I had the big old station wagon. I never knew that. And I would go to the yellow page depot or whatever, and they had like a month where they did this. And I don't even, you know, I'm sure some, some, uh, paper version of Craigslist that must have found the job back then. And, um, and so they'd load you up with yellow pages and then give you a list of these houses to go to. And they'd say, okay, um, uh, you know, just hit all the houses and drop off however many phone books you think they need. I was like, well, how do I, how do I tell what they need? I was like, well, you know, it's a big house and it looks like they may have five phones. Give them five Jeez. yellow pages. Wow. And then, 
phone book I drop off. So I got it was like ten cents a book. So I was like, this seems like this place could use ten phone Just books. Take it them all like right to recycling. <laughs> exactly. So to have you know that was obviously a while ago, but the incentive system because they want to demonstrate to the world, like sign up for the advertising, the yellow pages. It's delivered to a million people in Seattle. And it's like, yeah, we just delivered a million of them to one house, but there were a million of them delivered. So it's a really screwed up incentive system and marketing system. And I was on the other side of it briefly. And so when um, uh, they, they started their, their annual delivery in Seattle that year, and uh, someone someone emailed me. It was just like, can you stop this? I just showed up. He had an apartment building with like 10 units, and there were like there were 25 of these on the front porch. And he's like, now no one in my building uses these. I got to fill up my recycling bin. Now it's overflowing. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of paper. And so, yes, we, we um, passed some legislation uh, that, that significantly restricted the yellow pages. Um, there was actually a lawsuit. It went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. We, we were turned back on one of the issues, but we reached a settlement with them where, you know, basically they agreed to, to significantly reduce them. And, and shortly after that, I think they've kind of all gone out of business or declared bankruptcy. There's probably still a few kicking around, but it was, it was a fun thing to do. I can imagine, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, this absolutely sounds logical. And of course, you were on the other side of it. So you knew how wasteful this was and what ridiculousness it was. But then there's always the other side, which will eventually get to the whole crux of you can't make everybody or even most people happy. So I imagine with the phone book situation, that was the start of like, well, you're ruining people's business or you're taking away advertising or what? I mean, what was the main argument for the phone book situation against you know, taking them away? Yeah, you know, there's there's always the you can't make everyone happy. But there are some things, especially in a city like Seattle, where you can make just about everyone happy. And this was one of those. You know, the people that don't like it are the folks that work for the yellow page industry. It's not even the phone companies anymore. You know, the, it used to be that AT&T owned the yellow pages, but they sold it off to someone else. And so there's a handful of people that work for them. Those businesses are, for the most part, located in some other jurisdiction, so it's not like their headquarters are here. Um, there's a few folks that, of course, just like, you know, how dare you meddle in businesses, um, you know, you know, extreme libertarian. But even those folks, libertarians, are like, how dare you drop garbage on my front doorstep and make <laughs> me pay to throw it away? That's baloney. You should pay for this stuff. Right. And so, yeah, the piece, the piece that we tried to impose was a, a per yellow page fee um, that they would pay, because the city ended up recycling all these once they went in the recycling bin. We said, you have to pay for your own recycling. And that was, that was ruled, uh, I think, unconstitutional, some violation of free speech. And so we debated going to the Supreme Court on that one. But at the end of the day, they agreed to honor all the opt-out lists. And we had like half the city signed up to opt out. And at some point, it doesn't make sense to deliver anymore when most people don't want them. And they got the message. Yeah. Ugh. It's probably, to be clear, it's probably an industry that would have died on its own because of everything else going on. And we may have accelerated it by a few months, but it felt good. <laughs> Was it in any way kind of pioneering? I'm curious, or did, did it happen in other parts of the country? And they were like, we don't need these things anymore. Yeah, no, it was great. It was one of those things as a politician, you know, most almost everyone in Seattle was in favor of it, so I was not getting any hate mail. I was mostly getting love mail. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Uh, the, the press loved to cover it, because it's very visual. Like, you know, we had, you know, I, I told people, um, if you have a Yellow Pages that you got delivered you don't want, bring them down to City Hall and I'll take them. And so we had these massive piles of yellow pages in our office. Um, we, it was like Legos. We'd build like a throne out of it one day. Around. So That's the press great. loved to come and film that. And of course, they could just go out to anyone's doorstep and ask, like, you know, they'd see the yellow pages on the door and knock on the door. And, you know, there weren't people like, oh, thank, it's not Steve Martin in the jerk anymore. Thank God the yellow pages are here. I'm somebody. So, so that story was really good. And nationally, people around the country were like, hey, why don't we want to do this too? So some of the national press picked it up and carried the story, and city council members and mayors were calling, like, "Hey, tell me how you did this." And our law department was talking to other law departments. So, so yeah, it was fun, and it you know it was, it was mostly feel good. There's there's things you do that are controversial that piss people off, 
there's things in here that are controversial that mostly make people happy, and this was the latter. I, I was going to say, does it make you miss those days? Like, the, the end of your tenure was not this sunshine and roses. Not, no, not that way. And so, <laughs> yes, those days are good. Like I said, you know, it's, it's good to feel like you're making a meaningful difference. That was somewhat meaningful. Like, it probably would have died on its own shortly. And when you get into the things that, that actually impact people in ways that are, like, meaningful change but are really hard, it becomes painful too, and and that's like towards the end of my term, you know, you, you start doing more of those things, and just the the nature of how we talk about politics in this country has really shifted in the last decade, and it's, it's become a I mean, if I don't like you, I yell at you, as opposed to Mike, I want you to hear my side, I want to listen to your side, let's talk about that, let's talk about where we agree and disagree, and you know, it's you know, there's elections, and you know, whoever wins gets to decide some of that stuff, but you know. That, that kind of civil discourse has disappeared in a lot of places, unfortunately. Well, I definitely have some more um, specific things that I want to ask about, but since you've already kind of broached this, I want to get into maybe starting from the beginning of what in the world would make you want to be a politician? <laughs> I mean, I think so many people want change and they want to bitch about people that are in power making the changes, but they don't want to do it themselves. So what would make you leave a good job, I assume it was a good job, to do this just unappreciated work? To wake up every morning and be faced with problems. And for 10 years. <laughs> I mean, not just one term. Yeah. You know, um, the thing that I was working on, uh, you know, so I had a day job. I was a CFO at a law firm for 10 years. But I was volunteering for the Sierra Club and working on environmental issues, mostly around climate change. And in cities like Seattle, transportation is often the biggest climate impact. So working a lot on transportation policy and how to drive less and, um, you know, take transit. Walk, All right, I just bike. have to interject right now. Was it very much like singles where everybody <laughs> wanted like a high-speed train with music and coffee? Did you see that movie? <laughs> I saw that so long ago. But... We did talk about the dream transportation system. I want, and it was a little bit like COVID. Like, and I want a bunch of space around me. <laughs> I want a coffee holder. <laughs> so it was yeah. like singles. <laughs> yeah, it was. So I, you know, I was working on those issues, and I, you know, I've been a climate activist for a number of years, and I care a lot about it. And I just it felt like there was an opportunity to do some things at the city of Seattle um, as an elected official that I couldn't do as an activist. And, you know, I knew a little bit about it, you know, like what life would be like and how it would be different. But I, I figured, like, you know, those, the, the downsides are things that I think I'm, my personality can deal with fine. And, that, you know, I'm, I like to work with people that I disagree with and try to find common ground and stuff like that. So that, that was exciting to try. And, you know, I did my old job for 10 years, and this was a – Working on climate issues was something that really motivated me to get out of bed in the morning as opposed to, um, I love the lawyers I worked for, but just, you know, making sure they got a paycheck every couple of weeks was less motivating for me. So apparently 10 years is your job limit. Like, you need to move that, on. It, it is. We'll see what the next one is, but it seems <laughs> to be about right. That's a good one. And I assume that you talked to your lovely wife about this, and how does she feel about you going into city, city government? This isn't just any city. I mean, Seattle is huge. <laughs> Yes, I do. <laughs> we rode naked in a parade a couple years before you ran because there were conversations about him running, and and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll just we'll go do this bike ride, and then he won't be able to. <laughs> <laughs> no, so you know, like a year later, the conversations kept happening, and then. Um, and then I was like, oh, he's not going to be able to because we, we were naked in the Fremont Parade. And they're I mean, like, isn't you all of Fremont naked in the Fremont Parade? This is Seattle. That would only help his campaign. <laughs> so true. Nice try, though. <laughs> so, Julie, um, we, did, we did sit down, and uh, there were a couple friends that really wanted me to do this, and they – knew more about it than I did, so we had dinner, and they talked about what it would be like, and, you know, <clears throat> Julie's, Julie's passion is around food more than climate, 
Um, but the city has some food policy stuff, and she's like, all right, here's the deal. <laughs> if you do this, um, I'm in. I think you'll be good at it. I think you want to do it. I'll support you. And you got to do some food stuff for me, too. So, so that was that was kind of the deal. I'm not sure how much I accomplished on the food front, but <laughs> we, got a lot, we have a lot of farmer's markets in the city of Seattle. We try to treat, treat, treat them pretty well. Yeah, definitely. You distracted me now. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. Was it, who was the mayor? Gwyn? McGuinn? So, so McGinn was elected mayor at the same time. Right. I That's what I was wondering. Is he one of the ones that was talking you into it? Because I did read somewhere in your pages that you guys kind of, he was like a mentor kind of, and you guys kind of came into office at the same time. He was actually. He, he and another guy, um, uh, who've been volunteering with the Sierra Club were both like called me one day in I think November and said, Hey, you need to run for city council next year. <laughs> and I was like, Well, maybe, I don't know, let's talk about it. So we talked about it. And then about a month after I said, Okay, I'm gonna do this, I'm in, um, again called back and said, You know, you should actually run for mayor <laughs> I said, I'm not running for mayor. He's like, No, dude, seriously, it's like he's vulnerable, we need a better mayor, da 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 I was like, I'm not running for mayor. And he said, okay, well, maybe I'll run for mayor then. And, that's, and he did. And he, he won. Did me won, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. So we, you know, we, he was a lawyer at the law firm I was at. He was a Sierra Club volunteer, recruited me. Um, his wife is my wife's bookkeeper. <laughs> you know, our lives are intertwined quite a bit. So, yes. Were you, so, do you feel like you were naive enough about city council that you weren't nervous about it or did you have some trepidation about actually doing it yeah no i think it was probably the right mix of like not fully knowing what i'm getting into and knowing enough what i get into i mean the campaign so so a couple council members retired that year so i was running for an open seat and there were six of us running and, and so that was up till august when the primary was and there's about two or three months where it seems like every day there's like some event you have to go to and you're on stage and, you know, this will be the, you know, the forum in Northwest Seattle about, you know, park access and boat ramps. And so you're studying and you're trying to figure out what the policy is. And I haven't used a boat ramp in the city in for years. And, you know, what, what do people care about and what do I care about? And then I get, you get like, a minute to introduce yourself because there's six of us in our race, but then there are like five other races or four other races. There are probably 30 of us on the stage and you get a minute to say something and then you get a minute to answer a question and you get a minute to re rebuttal or something. And, and no one can really tell who's running against each other. And you just spend an hour on stage and said three minutes of things that everyone else said the exact same thing, but you're trying to stand out and sound intelligent. And, and then afterwards you're talking to people and shaking hands. And then you that know you hop, like a in nightmare. you hop in your bike and you ride to the next one, and it's like you know uh, the friends of the library is putting on their forum, and so you know it's 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 stressful and like it's exhausting, um, and like I get up in the morning and I'm just like, oh, look what I got to do today, and then you're there and it's hard, but like you're with a bunch of people that care about boat ramps or library books or whatever it is. And they're, you know, it's great. You get, like, you're meeting people I didn't meet. They care about it. They, they tell you things that they want to see change. Some of it, you're like, no, that's crazy. I'll never do that. So I was like, oh, seems like a good idea. Like, I'll, I, I want to try to work with you. And so you get to meet a bunch of people. And at the end of it, you know, at the end of the day, you're just, like, exhausted. You want to go to bed. And um, you do. And then the next morning, you're like, I want to sleep in. And you can't. And, and then you're back at it. But when you're out there, it's like, for me at least, it was energizing. It's, it's neat to meet with people who care enough to show up at these forums or put them on and they care about issues and you know it's hard not to want to help support them so so it's it's a mix of of uh both dread and then you get into the job and then you realize more of like oh that thing i said i would do that sounded really good that's illegal <laughs> but i didn't know it at the time so it was good and everyone in the audience clapped when i said it and then the next time when i'm running as an incumbent I'm like, well, I can't say that thing because it's illegal. But the guy running against me can, and everyone's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Can you like, then say you one. can't do that? Yeah, it depends on the moment. And like, yeah, that's a good idea. We should try it. Yeah, or, you yeah, know, it I sounds like the bad guy. But you can <laughs> exactly. say, like, I thought that was a good idea too, but then I found out, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 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 And, you know, 
some of the stuff it's you know you hear from the lawyers it's illegal but if you push hard enough they're like well yeah maybe there is a way around that if you really try so sometimes it just takes people being naive or passionate or dedicated or not accepting no for an answer to, to make those things happen so so yeah it's a little bit of all the mix um but i i i really liked the job um and it was hard and it got harder over 10 years for sure but i you know i learned a ton i took a lot away from it hopefully i added a bunch back to the city depending on who you talk to they'll say whether it was an ad or a negative but um but I was, I was proud of what I accomplished, and it was good. I was going to interject something that I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't remember. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I'm, I'm listening, and I'm also thinking about the questions on my page, but then as you're talking, I'm thinking of more questions that I didn't write down. Right, the, the, uh, the boat, the Norwegian... Uh... Oh, we'll get to that. Oh, get into that. Okay. That's, that's at the end. I want to talk about the good stuff first. Yeah. Yeah. So, some of the other things, well, well I'm sure I'll remember what I was going to say. Uh, some of the other things was uh, the deep bore tunnel. That was a big money suck in the end. But I think it seemed like most, um, okay, let's back up. Part of the problem with government, and I think this is what I was going to say, part of the problem with government is I don't think enough people understand how it actually works. And similar to you, you have all these great ideas, and then you get into this, bureaucracy and rules and laws and you just can't fix things like you hope you can for a variety of reasons and one of which is because it's not a dictatorship <laughs> right so when yeah. we when we as lay people are watching the news and all these people are like oh you know let's dig a tunnel so we can just go under the city no big deal and i'm thinking well there's already holes under the city how are you gonna dig another one but Everybody seemed to be for it, and you were the one holdout. So how was that? Because that was quite a while ago, before things were really yeah. terrible. How how was that being the one holdout in in such a large city with so much, you know, for for doing it? Yeah, it was hard. Um, it was right when I started, so it was from day one, this was the thing. You know, it was a state highway project, so this. You know, it wasn't the city putting its money up. It was the state putting its money up. But there were a bunch of clauses and talk and things that if there were cost overruns, the city would have to pay. And and then there was all the city permits and other things that the city had to do to give it. And so I was trying to do everything I could to stop it because I thought it was a bad idea. I mean, everybody understands <laughs> the viaduct was a dangerous thing and it was probably not yeah. going to last much longer. And the tunnel yeah. was supposed to be a replacement for the viaduct? Yeah, that was the idea. So there are, there are basically three camps. There, there was there was um, the the viaduct was unsafe, and so and it, I would say roughly a third of the city said, you know, what you should do is just either shore up the viaduct or build a new viaduct, um, and that was going to be like the cheapest way to still have a freeway through town. And then there are the folks that said. Um, no, no, we need a freeway, but not that big, ugly thing above ground, so let's build a tunnel. And that was the most expensive way to have a freeway through town. About a third of the people wanted that. And then about a third of the people were where I was, which was, let's try to not live with a, a second freeway. I mean, we have I-5 through town. Let's have just one freeway through town and instead invest this money in transit. And as a climate activist, I felt that, um, you know, Whatever you build, people use. If you build a library, people come use a library. If you build a light rail, people will drive a light rail. If you build a freeway, people will get in their cars and drive on the freeway. And so there's this question of, like, well, what is everyone going to do? It's like, well, people will use whatever we give them. And the world's changing. And as the world changes, we're going to need less roads and more transit. And plus it's a, you know, multi-billion dollar thing. And we don't have the money. And who's going to pay for it? It's risky. So we should just instead invest in transit. So I was I was on the don't rebuild a freeway, fix the surface streets, and invest in transit. And so um, depending on what you talked about, that meant there were two-thirds of the people that didn't like the tunnel. It meant there were two-thirds of the people that didn't like an elevated. <laughs> and it meant there were two-thirds of the people that wanted a freeway. And so, but so let's do a tunnel and up, a fucking mass transit. <laughs> 
<clears throat> so you couldn't. Um, there was no. There was majority to kill everything, but not majority to get anything done. Right. Um, and so I was trying to leverage that. I, I, I still believe that it was a waste of money. Um, you know, we, we debated this for a year or two. I, at one point, I remember I actually went back last year, two years ago, and found a quote where I was like, well, worst case scenario, what happens? Like, yeah, it gets stuck under First Avenue, and they have to dig a huge pit and go down and pull the thing out and somehow fix this and put it back in the ground and keep going. And who's going to pay for that? Where's your crystal to- ball? Let me see it. <laughs> yeah. It was in, if you Google um, uh, Publicola, I think, was uh, publicola.com was the, the local blog that it was quoted in. Uh, quoted in. And when I looked that up, it was, I was like, oh, I did say that. That's pretty good. That's pretty much exactly what happened. You're a seer. Like, you know, I'm not a crystal ball. It was like, these are the types of things that happen on big projects that are risky. And, you know, thankfully, even though um, I lost the fight and it was an 8-1 vote on the council, I did, um, we were forced to do really good legal review of all the documents, and our, we hired outside consultants, we spent some money on it, but we went through all these scenarios, like, well, what would happen if this happened? What happens if it gets stuck? Walk me through it. And, you know, of course, I was looking for ways to say this isn't good enough, and so, as a result, you know, the contract between the state and the contractor, I think, was much better, and you know, you mentioned it's it's really expensive. We don't actually know how much it's going to cost because there's still a bunch of lawsuits going on. But because of those, those contracts, um, well, I don't want the tunnel. I do believe the contractor will get stuck with all those overrun costs because it was their fault. So, you know, hopefully we save taxpayers a few hundred million dollars on that one by just looking a little harder. Eh, just a few hundred million. Yeah. And that still and, won't you know, be good enough. The other thing that I'll tell you is that um, – being on a legislative body, you know, there's nine of us, nine legislators, nine city council members, and I disagreed with them vociferously on this, and these are my new colleagues who I'd never worked with before, and so I needed to also build relationships with them, because right. this wasn't the only thing we were working on, and it was, it was the thing the press wanted to cover, and of course, I would always get a quote on the news saying my colleagues are, are you know, idiots and jerks, but of course, I wouldn't use that language. I just, like... I disagree with them, and here's why I think they're wrong, and I think they're going to reject their position. But it was important that I spoke of them in terms that was not insulting. Because they are, they were, I really liked the people I worked with. They were nice human beings. They cared. I, I thought they were misguided on some things, and they thought I was misguided on some things. But, you know, we'd argue about the tunnel in the morning, and then in the afternoon I'd be working together to pass yellow page legislation. And so it was a skill that um, I had to develop um, and really try to model as someone who was outside politics, like, how should our elected leaders work together? It's like I, you want your people to be passionate. You want them to fight for the things you believe in. But you don't want them to be like, if you don't agree with me on this one, I'm taking my toys and going home. You mean like all of Congress? <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, Seattle's nonpartisan or, um, you know, we're obviously progressive. Now Now there are two parties in Seattle. There's, there's socialists and Democrats. So... It's a bit of a two-party system, and, of course, we fight over that now, even though it's kind of a joke. But, you know, we're all on a spectrum of what we believe, and and figuring out how to get together was really important. And I really appreciate that the city of Seattle has had a fairly long tradition of finding where we get along and don't get along, but working through it in a nice way. And that's kind of blown up in the last few years. But for a long time, that was part of the way we did things. Well, mostly because I don't want to keep you on the phone all night because I could talk about this ad nauseum. Uh, and certainly, uh, if you are willing, I'm, I will have you back to talk about all these things. But uh, um, Anytime. I love uh, it. I did read a really interesting article. Well, actually, real quick, I do want to bring up one more thing. So Pier 58 collapsed just recently. Yeah. And that, I think that was the one they've been talking about demoing for the past however a month or longer and then all of a sudden it collapsed did, did you feel like there was things like that in city council where it was like we're just talking this to death and then something finally happens and it's like why couldn't we act yeah you know i think there's a bit of that and you know the viaduct you know the the when the tunnel opened what two years ago or something and the earthquake was in 2001 and you know it was, it could have fallen down, you know, I, I think good people were doing their best to keep it running, but there were some 
you know, there's risk in everything we do, right? Um, and um, they were monitoring it very closely, but that was not, not a place that I wanted to be in an earthquake, for sure. Um, and so, you know, that took a while to resolve, and, and thankfully it didn't, there was not another earthquake, and it didn't collapse before we got done, but there's some risk on that. You know, on the piers, I, I think this is actually a story of, of, of things working the way they're supposed to, kind of. Um, you know, the seawall was always identified as a big risk to the city. If there was a big earthquake and all the land uphill would liquefy, and I mean, literally, like, Seattle would slide into the water. And the seawall that was holding it up was this old wooden board that, that a bunch of bugs had eaten out, and it wasn't, wasn't going to hold. And so a couple of years ago, we, we finally completed the rebuilding of that seawall, you know, $300 million or something, a concrete thing. And that was the thing, again, a bunch of us were disagreeing on the tunnel, but everyone was working together to get that seawall rebuilt, which was, which was good. Um, and then, of course, the piers are attached to that. And there's a couple of piers, Pier 62 and 63, I think, that are just north of the aquarium where the concerts of the piers used to be. And those were unsafe, and those have been retrofitted. One was one was retrofitted, one was completely rebuilt to make them safe. And the one you're talking about, yeah, that was supposed to be replaced in, I think, 2022 or 2023 as it was aging. And in the inspections they did, they noticed a couple months ago that it was starting to pull away from the seawall. And so it's like, okay, this thing is moving. It is now dangerous. So they shut it down. They moved up the bid to demo it to now as opposed to two years from now and i don't know exactly what happened i mean i'm not on there but i imagine that you know folks out there with jackhammers they were all you know they had a bunch of safety equipment around so they were aware that it was risky but it, you know it's like a little demo project in your house you know when things are about to go and you just kind of surf it and write it down but it's a much bigger one and so i don't know what happened and you know i know it was an investigation but you know thankfully they identified that it was a risk they blocked it off to people the folks that were out there were construction workers, but there were safety protocols in place. I believe both the folks that fell in the water were released from the hospital, so they're okay. And, yeah. You know, there's, there's probably some damage to salmon habitat and the fountains in the bottom of Elliott Bay, and that'll have to be rescued. But, you know, it's, it's an old, it's, there's old things in the city that we need to fix, and this one we're probably just a little bit too late, but no one got hurt. So Could have been a lot worse. Could have been a lot worse, yeah. I mean, I've always been curious about those uh, that underground in Seattle. Aside from the whole hill sliding into the water and a yeah. tsunami, if we have a major, when we have a major earthquake, what's going to happen to that underground? Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. I'm not an expert on that. Um, but a bunch of the buildings in downtown Seattle, especially in Pioneer Square, but even up by, like, you know, Westlake Park and stuff, they, like, own these right-of-ways under the sidewalk and like these sidewalks are over old tunnels and like I, I remember going to like a homeless shelter and they're like yeah you know we need some help with this thing and I'm like what thing and it's like going in your basement and there's a little crawl space but it's a big building like look in here and like that's like what is that like well the road and the sidewalk are above it and we're kind of responsible for it I guess but we're like a homeless shelter and you know we don't you know and so a couple of years ago in Pioneer Square, they, they prohibited the buses from being, um, like I think on the outside or inside lane, because they're going over these underground tunnel spaces that need to get rebuilt, and it was just too much weight. And so, yeah, it's an old city that has been built upon the ruins of an older city. Yes. You know, not quite, not quite Rome or Athens, but we're a modern-day version of that. And, you know, the seawall's been replaced, the viaduct's down. Um, Pretty and there's still some other places that you may want to stay away from in an earthquake. <laughs> I hope I'm nowhere near Seattle in an earthquake. Uh, so I read this really great article, and I don't know if you have seen it or not. It was actually written back in May of 2018, and it was by a guy named David Croman, and it was on Crosscut.com. Do you know this one? It, it's called, yep. the title is The Most Divisive Man in Seattle. And when I read that title, I thought, oh, this is going to be terrible, right? This is going to be like scathing against Mike. And it actually did not come across that way at all, to me anyway, as I was reading it. Um, he definitely was talking about people feeling that way and that things were coming to a head and everything was kind of pointed in your direction. Like you got the brunt of every single thing. So we're kind of swinging into that. Burke Gittleman trail or whatever it is in the in the museum situation. But 
you just got the brunt. It was like no, there was no other city councilman except for uh, oh, what's the lady's name? The socialist Shama. lady. Shama yes. She gets a lot of it. Uh, yeah. But in this article, I thought it was really great that they, you know, they went out of their way to say, look, everybody that's ever worked with you has said that you've not changed your positions. You're still representing the same things you came in with. You're transparent. You're you're just the one that actually speaks up instead of kowtowing to everybody and saying what they want to hear. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that article came out about a week or so after... We did a town hall meeting at a church in Ballard about homelessness. And this was when it felt like every couple weeks, you know, we were moving encampments around from one neighborhood to the next and it was playing kind of whack-a-mole, and which meant that, that at some point over the course of a few months, everybody would have a homeless camp in the park near their house. And as you did that, more and more people got really fed up. Some people were fed up that, like, like, how come you can't find housing for these people? These are, you know, these are our neighbors. You need to provide more housing. Some people were fed up. Like, how come these people are here? They should be, they should find their own housing or put them in jail. They don't deserve to be out here. Um, and a whole range in between of, of what the problem is. And so we went into that meeting at the, um, the church in Ballard, knowing that it was going to be really contentious. We were working on the attacks uh, for... Um, large businesses in Seattle, head tax, Amazon tax, you know, called those things. It was going to tax, I think, 500, the 500 largest businesses in Seattle and raise something like $40 million a year to, to fund a little bit for more homeless shelters, but mostly to build more affordable housing. And people were pissed that, because I think, right, I think the morning of that meeting, Amazon announced that they were going to not lease a building in Seattle and it stopped construction on another one. So they were playing hardball. They basically put on their gloves and said, we're not going to take this sitting anymore. Um, and Amazon, to that point, had been pretty apolitical. You know, they cared about their permits, but they really stayed out of it. But they jumped in with guns blazing that morning or the day before. And so now people are pissed there's homeless. Now they're pissed that, they're pissed that Amazon is growing our city and changing it so fast. And they're also pissed that Amazon's maybe going to leave. And so none of these things are really consistent with each other, but it was just, it's not terribly different than we're in today. It just keeps getting worse. People are frustrated. They feel like everything's changing too fast. They don't know where they stand. They don't know where their personal financial situation feels unstable. And, um, and, and they're frustrated. And so who do you yell at? You know, maybe you yell at the president, but he's not listening to you. Maybe you yell at the governor, but you can't get his ear, but you can probably get your city council member to show up. And, this was a forum that, that I put on, um, knowing that people would come out and be upset. And I invited, um, well, frankly, all of my colleagues were invited, but three other city council members showed up, and I'm grateful for that. Invited them to my district. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was, it was really awful. You know, you couldn't hold the conversation because people in the audience just would stand up, scream, and people were yelling at each other. And, and it was all on TV, and they captured it, and, it was a little bit of like, you know, I mentioned before, like, what happened to Seattle Nights? What yeah. happened where we agree to disagree and have civil conversations? And I think David's article was reflective of that. Um, I know that I have friends who emailed David and said, how dare you write this about Mike? He's the nicest guy and does so much for the city. But he said um, that in the article. I know, I know. And I, 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 I was like, I, you know, the headline is obviously the headline. And it's meant to get... It's clickbait. David's a good reporter, and I respect his work. And I, you know, my take on it was what your take was. I said it's very fair, it's accurate. Um, you know, I'm not the most. The point was, I'm not the most divisive because I'm a divisive person. It's like I'm stepping into the middle of things that are at the root of some of the big decisions we need to make as a city, and it, they're divisive because there's not an easy answer, and the city's divided, and I'm putting myself at the crossroads, and I'm going to try to navigate it, but I'm going to, you know. Successful politicians piss off slightly less than half and make slightly more than half happy. But um, you know that that that's that's, that's the what job. we do. That's the job, and it's hard. And then and it's you know it's hard when people are getting along pretty well, and it's really hard when when people aren't. And um, you know I, I I disagree with our president's politics on pretty much every front. 
Um, and most people in Seattle do. He doesn't. He doesn't poll very well in the city of Seattle. But uh, you know his tactics and his approach to you know yelling at people and belittling them and making fun of people and not actually trying to bring people together, even though we reject his politics. That that the model he's setting um, permeates regardless of where you are in the political spectrum. It's like. Well, that model seems to work mm. for him, and I'm going to make it work for me. Even if I disagree with him, I'm going to try those tactics. And yeah. I don't know, maybe they work, maybe they don't. Um, I, I, I don't think they work, and I think it spells the doom of our country and our democracy if we keep following it. And so I try to live up to my personal standards and stand up for things I believe and, frankly, fight for people, you know. They're not easy, you know. Solving homelessness is not easy, and there's there's not a right answer. Oh, and that could be a I, whole another episode. <laughs> yeah. Do you think and there I, could be a know, chance? Do you think there could be a chance that he would be reelected? Uh, I don't want to think about it. Yeah, unfortunately, I think. Yeah. I mean, there's I always a chance. Through, but I didn't. I didn't think he could be elected four years ago, and yeah. <laughs> I'm living that nightmare now. So I, yeah, it's um, you know, all the games of postal service and lawyers and buy ammo and go to the streets and, you know, be ready to defend him with guns in the street. I mean, it feels like the things that I used to read about in the developing world that we laugh at, they think, God, I don't live there, and it's being imported here. But we'll see. I still believe in our country, you know. You did mention at the end of that article, you said, uh, I think it was the end of the Ballard community meeting, you said that you, you did have more worry about democracy. And, you know, this was two years into Donald Trump, so... Um, yeah. Is it is it that is it that we're having more difficulty with civil discourse and being pulled apart as by modeled modeled by our government? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. You know, I should probably name that one of the big shifts that happened on Council Two is was that Shama got elected, and she is um, you know very progressive like I am. She's more radical than I am more progressive than me too probably um but perhaps more importantly she brings a very different style to it and it's easy for me to sit here as a middle-class white guy and say you know what we all used to get along it was all good but the reality is like the city wasn't working for so many people and you know i don't you know i was i was i was fighting hard on the tunnel and i would push as hard as i could and i was trying to ask the smart questions and still be civil around it but when someone said, you know, we should have a minimum wage of $15 an hour, I thought, like, yeah, we should. But that's crazy. Um, you know, it's like, is it $9? You can't go to 15 I mean, that's, that doesn't work. I mean, my wife has a little business, and she's paying her people 10 or 12 bucks an hour, and they, should, they deserve more. But, you know, how do you make that work? And, and, um, and I was like, I, I mean, I, I get the concept, but I kind of laughed. And I, I was actually running for re-election the same time Shama got elected. And so we were at a bunch of these forums together. And I, I saw her get really angry and, and really passionate about what's not working. And I saw people in audiences standing up. And sometimes there were, like, older white people were standing up saying, yeah, the system's broken. And a bunch of you guys sitting around at City Hall playing nice with each other isn't doing it anymore. And I think there's an aspect of that. Um, and I don't know what the line is between, like, we have to have civility in politics. But Seattle, you know, is, is a pretty democratic city, but, you know, but it's, it's run by a bunch of wealthy people, like all cities. And those, those leaders happen to be Democrats in Seattle. They're not Republicans. But there's still a little bit of, like, you know, don't upset the boat too much. Don't rock things too much. I mean, we're willing to change a little bit. But, and I think our society needs to be rocked quite a bit right now. And can you do that without yelling at each other? I would like to believe you could, but I haven't quite seen that model yet. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's, that's why I, you know, I, I fear for democracy. I still have faith in democracy. Because I have faith in people, you know, our country and our, our city and our state that will... Snohomish County you know, feels pretty red. Yeah. It does. Well, Snohomish County, yeah. it's more rural. Yeah. And the yep. farther you get away from Seattle, the more rural. I mean, Washington is a purple state. Yep. King, King County and Pierce are Democrat, and pretty much everywhere else is Republican. They just don't have the numbers. I think Snohomish is better than Pierce, frankly. Um, really? Uh, 
Yeah, so Omish is probably about 50-50, and Pierce probably tilts a little bit more the other way. Oh, Tacoma wow. and Everett are both progressive, and, you know, they vote for Democrats in their cities and stuff. And, um, but, you know, it's not even clear what it means to be a Republican anymore. Like, when I grew up, you know, when we all grew up, Republican meant, like, you know, I preferred lower taxes, and I wanted more accountability and less national debt. Um, but, like, you know, it didn't mean, like, you yeah. know, some of the crazy stuff that folks are talking about today. And so we need, you know, and again, I don't, we can't go back to the way it was because it can't. And also that, that system really didn't work for a lot of people, especially people of color. Yeah. Um, but, but even, you know, white people that are living in poverty in a bunch of places, it's really hard for them. And so you can't go back to it, but we do need like multiple parties and different points of view. And right now it's like, I care about guns. So my only choice is to vote for this one guy, or I care about women's reproductive rights. So my only choice is to vote for this. I and read you loud and clear. People saying, I have 10 issues that I care about. Right. And I care about climate, and I, I like to hunt, but I don't like to target shooting, and I don't think people should have bombs, but I want to be able to drive my pickup because I like to go snowmobiling in the winter, but I would love it to be an electric pickup because I do care about climate change because I want to have snow. I mean, we, we're nuanced human beings, and our party system reduces that to you're either on this side or that side. Yeah. What's the sticker? Do you put a Sierra Club sticker or an NRA sticker or a Planned Parenthood <laughs> sticker on your car? And that defines you. And it's like, no, I'm not defined by one sticker. I'm not defined by one vote. Um, and yet the parties, both parties, in particular this president, but both parties have made a business out of, you know, being the other, the other party. And, I, you know, I, I would love to see four or five, six parties. And maybe the Republican Party will collapse and rebuild itself, and then the Democratic Party will split and have some more factions, and you know, maybe that'll be better. But I don't know. You look around the world, and I, I used to think parliamentary systems were better, but look what's going on in the U.K. and other places. They all you know, have like problems. It doesn't feel good either. And that, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I, like I said, I could talk about this at nauseum, and I could keep you on this video for all day long to talk about this. And you are welcome to come back and talk to me about it. Uh, but I do want to end on this last thought, which is about Trump, kind of. Are you just so thankful that you did not have to deal with COVID and CHOP and every other damn thing that's happened this year? Because this year has been ridiculous. Yeah, I you, really am. You just have to be the most thankful, like, thank God it was over at the end of last year. <laughs> I, I feel, yes. So I... I had my quote about what could happen on the boring machine if it gets stuck, and I picked a really good time to step out of city politics. I will say that um, COVID's really hard because, you know, again, like I mentioned, when you're hurting in a city, you go to your closest politician and that's your city council member, and it's really hard to solve a global pandemic with zero national leadership at the local level. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel bad for my colleagues. Um, in Seattle and, frankly, everywhere around the country that have to try to figure out how to set up testing and they have to be experts on personal protection of equipment and finding, you know, you know, contracting with foreign countries to get tests in here. I and mean, that should be the federal government that figures out how to get the tests and how to allocate them to who needs them the most. And so that's – and, then, you know, so cities are bidding against each other in a bidding war, driving up prices because there's no leadership. That's, that's baloney, and I, that sucks. Um the, the racial uh, reality that we're all seeing in a way that I had heard from so many of my friends how awful it is to be black or Latino or uh, indigenous for so many years. And I, I intellectualized it and I was like, oh, yeah, I know I know this. And yet what's happened this summer is made me like see it in a more emotional way than I really understood before. And there are some really important things that cities can do. And so, you know, doing that work on the city council, I I kind of miss that because that's, I think, really important work that cities can do. And it's really hard and divisive. And I think there's some good people on Seattle City Council that are working through it. And so I'm, um, I'll say I missed that one a little bit. I missed COVID zero. I missed that one a little <laughs> bit. But I'm, there are some good people doing that work and working through it. And I'm grateful that I can spend time with my family and not be immersed in that because, you know, I have, we have old people in our family that are getting older and it's very into their lives or just past the end of their lives. And I'm grateful that I have some free time to do some of that work too. Um, and other people are handling it. And then there's this forest fire stuff where I, now I can't 
<laughs> I can't visit my friends inside. I can only visit them outside because of COVID, except now I can't be outside right. because it can't breathe the air. And that feels like, what can you do in the city? Like, buy everyone an air filter? It's like, Ugh. we've been talking about climate change for a while. And we, we missed the boat, but we got to get going on it. Cause What's it's gonna the get next shitstorm that's going to hit, I wonder? I know. Earthquake. <laughs> what else can happen? I know. But I mean, something, clearly. Well, maybe I just thank you for saying indigenous because so many people forget, and especially around here, even the Pacific Northwest, we are full of indigenous people. Seattle has a probably a little bit more contentious relationship since the Duwamish tribe is not federally recognized, and that's a whole other thing we could have a podcast about. Yep. So. And we're living on their land, and we took it from them. Jesus. And, um, you know, they, they're... They're very gracious people and are proud to still champion this. And I think we collectively owe them the recognition they deserve and probably owe them some rent for using their land at a minimum for what we've done. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I think we'll probably save the other topics for later uh, because it's already been an hour. And I am just so grateful that you sat down and talked to me. Uh, thank you, Julie, if you're still in the background. She's there. She may have her headphones on. <laughs> Thank you, I'll Mike. tell you that, that um, uh, there's nothing off limits. I love to talk clearly. And still, and so anytime you want to invite me back, um, I'm always happy to do it. So. Oh, don't test me because I will schedule you right now. Like, <laughs> this could be like a 10-part series, seriously. <laughs> All right. That concludes our interview with Mike O'Brien for now. I certainly anticipate more discussions with him as time goes on. If you have any questions for Mike about city council, about public service, about Seattle specifically, please feel free to send those to someDayDeadPC at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at someDayDeadPC, and you can find us on Facebook at Someday Will All Be Dead Podcast. I do want to quickly mention, since today is September 20th, that the dearly departed Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a huge loss for the country. I hope we can take some time to take care of ourselves. If this has affected you, I'm sure it's affected all of you in one way or another. And however that is, as a supervisor told me this morning, right now, in this moment, I'm okay. And that's going to be my mantra going forward, just to get through the next couple weeks and months since everything is in chaos. I will be thinking of all of you and certainly hope that you're doing well. We don't need this kind of stress because we've only got one life to live as far as we know. And someday we'll all be dead.